I've been reading your posts about your DAO. I'm like super intrigued by it. But at the same time, I'm like, this sounds a little too complicated for what it's trying to accomplish. Which is completely fair. Very helpful okay. feedback, actually. Because it is. <laughs> no, it's early. I mean, everything seems complicated, but I love the theory. So let's just start with why do you think DAOs are potentially incredibly important? Welcome to The Rebooting Show. I'm Brian Morrissey, your host. Niche publishing brands are most powerful when they're at intersections. For my guest this week, Sherry Yu, the founder of Water & Music, that intersection is between music and technology and business. Water & Music was in many ways an accidental brand. Sherry was a freelance journalist back in 2016, relying on writing assignments from established publications like Billboard and Rolling Stone. You know, freelancers were the original creator class of journalism in many ways. They were well-practiced in juggling the actual writing with figuring out taxes, chasing down invoices, and yes, even tending to their personal brands in order to get that next assignment. In the spirit of a minimally viable personal brand, Sherry created an email newsletter in 2016 in order to distribute her latest stories and eventually started adding pieces that she wanted to write anyway without waiting for a publication to assign them. The newsletter became a creative outlet and it kept growing enough that Sherry ended up moving it to Patreon and started a membership program. By early 2019, Water & Music had attracted 5,000 free subscribers and by the next year it had 1,000 paying supporters. It now has over 2,000 members and it's also pioneering experimentation in Web3 models. Sherry and I talk about all of this in this conversation. Sherry, welcome to the Rebooting Show. Thank you for joining. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Honored. Yeah. And so you're coming to us from Phoenix, right? Home of the cul-de-sac. Okay. (laughs) So for those who don't know, I always like to get started. And I know we talked a while ago and you introduced me to to Water and Music. Explain how you got started with Water and Music, because we often talk a lot about creators and independent and stuff like this, but you were doing this before everyone was called creators. They used to just be called freelancers. Yes. (laughs) Freelancers or just (laughs) email newsletter writers, just simply. Yeah. So my background professionally has always been in writing and I've always focused on music and tech as my beat. Usually there's like a business angle as well. So I've been covering Spotify for several years. Started in 2015. That was the year that Apple Music had just launched, I think. So the whole big tech discussion around streaming was changing pretty quickly. So I covered that, covered a lot of music startups, and I did the yeah, more traditional freelance route. So writing for a lot of entertainment and business publications like Billboard, Forbes, Music Business Worldwide, and others in that vicinity. So yeah, I currently run my newsletter, Water & Music, but it started as just a totally free newsletter. I ran it on Review, which Twitter now owns, I guess, um, as yeah. a way to aggregate all of my freelance work that I was publishing elsewhere. Because actually a lot of this was inspired by writing about the music industry and interviewing a lot of artists and hearing over and over again the importance of owning your audience, having a connection with your audience. And I was like, oh, wait, this should totally be a thing for writers too. Like it would just be great to know who is like following my work across all these different publications as opposed to just like leaving that to best guesswork. Yeah. So I started Water Music as a free 
like mostly aggregator type newsletter for my own work in 2016. Over the course of a year, it did evolve into a mix of aggregating my other articles and then also serving as like a sandbox for my own original analysis and ideas on music and tech. A lot of more maybe like fringe or theoretical ideas that wouldn't necessarily fit well in one of these publications I was writing for. So I treated it as almost like a creative outlet. And that's when the newsletter audience actually started to grow a lot more. So I was like, oh, maybe there's something here. Like maybe people are searching for like this kind of perspective, especially one that's more like in-depth, analytical, trend-oriented around like where music and tech is going. And so it grew to small but size of around 5,000 subscribers by like early 2019 and there's like a definitely a community around it so I, I say the word community but i realized that there are a lot of these readers who would have such amazing discussions with each other but just did not know each other for whatever reason and there's no like outlet for them to engage and build that community more mm -hmm. horizontal way so kind of with this audience captive audience i was interested in this kind of perspective a lot of like-minded people i decided to make the jump and start a paid membership around water music so i did that on patreon in 2019 Okay. Between 2016 and 2019, it was a prototypical side hustle, if you will, right? The, your, yes. your main Correct. business was to get Billboard to pay you to write an article for Billboard or, and, and various other publications. Yes? Yes. Yes. And that's because that's, that's just, there wasn't this Substack didn't exist. Patreon existed, but it was generally used for different purposes. Yeah. The timing of all this is definitely surreal to think about sometimes. Yeah. Cause I think the Substack craze and the whole wave of like writers on that platform came up very shortly after i'd launched on patreon it was like um middle to late 2019 early 2020 but yeah just starting water music in it's like original form yeah it was just like a way yeah. for me to i guess build my own following independent of these other places right. that we're providing like most of my income. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So before you got to patreon it got up to to 5000 subscribers did you say? Mhm. Mm Okay. So what signals did you see that convinced you to make the sort of leap, right? Because I'm just interested because you said you could look at numbers of subscribers, but I get the sense that you saw something else. And, and email is different because you hear from people. What were the signals that you saw that made you say, hey, there's something here. I could make this into something. Yeah. Some of the signals were much more direct than others. Probably the most direct were just people asking for it. Like uh, a lot of people were asking, how can I support you directly, like financially, not just paying for your newsletter. I want to make sure I can support, especially some of these articles or essays I was publishing in Water and Music, which I was doing basically for free at the time to build my, my audience around that newsletter. So there's that direct signal of people just asking, which is really great. Slightly more indirect signal, mostly from going to conferences. So that was a big part of my job, at least in my view, is um, going to conferences as a way, especially to meet a lot of people in the industry that I'm covering who like might not otherwise be quoted in the media. So not just like senior level people, but across career stages, across different kinds of companies, just understanding their perspective and then realizing. So I guess that a lot of these like music industry conferences, especially very often the most exciting part is not just the programming itself, but all these like side discussions that happen, you know, like very spontaneous discussions among people who should have met uh, several years ago, but somehow are all congregating in this place, very like-minded, very forward thinking. And I realized that apart from just these conferences, there wasn't like an always on like ongoing space online, like where so many, so many of these people were doing their work to be able to continue these discussions apart from just showing up in person in this way. So I definitely saw a need 
um, especially in the world of like music startups, music and emerging tech, like virtual reality, AI, now Web3, of course, just like I saw an opportunity to create a space for that as a compliment to also the articles that I was publishing yeah. at the time. The takeaway here, look for signals. Understanding whether you have the publishing equivalent of product market fit requires finding those signals that tell you whether you're on the right path. Now, some of those are simple math, email subscribers, open rates, paying members, but some are intangible, like Sherry said, like people reaching out to you and asking how they can support your work and seeing people at conferences who are obsessed with the subject matter. So it was like a mixture of quantitative and qualitative because i think sometimes these things yes. are painted as oppositional it's either your gut or it's follow the data and in truth instinct is a part of it but you're using a different form of data and some of that is the most analog it's literally talking to mm -hmm. people yeah this is uh i mean huge topic in not to go back to the music industry but i think there's so many parallels between that's that's why we're talking media <laughs> awesome <laughs> amazing yeah i mean so when I first started writing about the music industry, there was a whole wave of A&R analytics tools, almost all of which could claim to predict the next big hit almost entirely based on data. So like based on previous analysis of like social media activity, SoundCloud, which was relatively bigger at the time, streaming activity, and almost all of them have now either like shut down or have been acquired by labels or by tech companies and used as part of exactly what you said, this like much more multi-layered, not purely data-driven at all kind of strategy. It's like, it's just one like very small cog almost. Yeah. Just in a wider tool could yeah. make a decision about like which artist to sign or what to invest in. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not that different for any sort of creative endeavor, right? I remember they were talking all about the data story with Netflix and like them green lighting. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. The Kevin Spacey show, House of Cards. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. This was a super amazing concept. It had great stars attached to it. Lots of people were bidding for it. Yeah. Put the AI aside. I mean, it's a mixture of things, but at some point you, know, you have to use instinct. But I think what would's important that I heard from you was that you were out talking to the people in this community. And I think sometimes people like hide behind the data and they don't get out and talk to people because they, they say, oh, that doesn't scale or stuff like this. I mean, looking at spreadsheets is only going to tell you so much. Completely. Oh my gosh. Especially if you are working in like media or culture or entertainment, that face-to-face -face interaction is super important. And actually, even in tech, this is maybe a cliche, but I think very true like piece of wisdom. I think it was Paul Graham, a very old blog post he wrote from like 2007 um, around like Y Combinator and mm -hmm. just like talking about like advice he would give to entrepreneurs. One of the first things he wrote was do things that don't scale early on. Yeah. yeah. And I think like Airbnb is classic case study of this where the founders would literally knock on the door of every single person who was hosting guests on their platform and talk to them one-on-one -on -one and like get feedback from yeah. them. That is the opposite of scalable, but just like yeah. so much of that early feedback influenced how the platform works today. So yeah, I see tons of parallels with what it's like running a newsletter, running a community, like definitely 
supporting yeah. this. Yeah. And, and when people are starting off, if anyone is listening to starting off, encourage people to email you and email them back. I know I'm like, yeah. I get lost in email and stuff, but I try to write everyone back because yeah. it's, this doesn't scale when I have 100,000 subscribers. I'll deal with that problem when I have 100,000 subscribers. But while I have 7,000, <laughs> I'm emailing every single person back. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So you decided there was enough there, there for you to make the leap. But the other thing is you're a writer. Yeah. There's advantages to doing freelance. So you're used to having to be like out on the hunt. <laughs> you can only eat what you kill as a freelancer, but it's a different thing when you're going to, you know, you're taking on more risk and let's face it, we're both in the journalism world. And like, we have a different like approach to risks. I feel like than a lot of the business side people. Mm. Yeah, what made me, I guess, a little bit more context about, I guess, my state of mind at that time. So launched the Patreon page in 2019. It still took a good part of a year to fully transition from making most of my income from freelancing to making most of my income from the Patreon page because I didn't want to give up the freelance world entirely. I, I think I wasn't that open to risk. I know many other people are, but I definitely wanted to have that sense of balance. Yeah. And so at the time, I, I didn't explicitly ask myself the question, like, am I ready to run a business? Because I didn't even know in terms of like, am I ready to run a standalone membership business? Because I wasn't even initially the goal, but I was so motivated enough by a lot of business slash IP related factors, like being able to have more ownership over the articles I was writing, over like the voice of the work I was doing, having a relatively more predictable revenue in that like with a platform like Patreon or Substack, whatever other platform, you have a certain amount of revenue coming in every month. There's no chasing down checks or having to send invoices as it's like part of the course in the freelance world. Definitely that direct connection with and regular engagement with readers um, and with supporters was super important. And just thinking about, I guess, like the kind of career that I wanted to have that would allow for the kind of work that I wanted to do. So the end game was always about what kind of articles will XYZ structure enable me to write. So it was always like very creatively motivated. Mm -hmm. And I think that the business structure naturally coalesced around that primary motivation. But yeah, I would say so it still took a year after launching in early 2019 to be like, okay, this is like an actual business now. Now how do I think about building out a team, hiring guest writers? Like that that all came relatively later, I would say. Yeah. But talk to me a little bit more about that. I mean, I call it autonomy because I think a lot of times when people are thinking about this space, if you want to call it the creator economy or whatever, when, when people are coming from the business operation side, just to sort of crudely divide it, I feel like they get a lot of the motivations wrong for people that want to choose a more independent path as mm. journalists or creators. So autonomy is, it's a squishy term, but I think it's really important. But a lot of times people on the, the business and the operation side assume it's all about economics and like people make decisions mm. like based on a lot of different factors and it's just not all economics. The second takeaway here is autonomy is about more than just money. You know, Water and Music really took shape as a brand when Sherry started treating it as a creative outlet rather than a promotional vehicle. The individual-led brand allowed her the freedom to have the kind of career that she wanted and to do the work that she wanted to do. And that's a more organic way of building a brand than to decide where you want to go and then try to figure out how to get there. Completely. Again, I actually have not made this connection in my mind until now, but there, there's a huge parallel with music where there's a huge movement and a ton of startups coming up around servicing the quote unquote DIY artist. So like DIY or like fully independent artist. And 
there is a lot of parallel with the creator economy in that the underlying assumption there is that the artist is doing most of all or all the work themselves, releasing all their, all their own music, making all their own artwork, running their whole business by themselves, which sure, if you're like just starting out, um, maybe that's the situation you find yourself in. But eventually, as your career grows, it is the complete opposite of a DIY effort like you have the manager slash business manager who's helping to manage super complicated royalty flows around your music you're probably working with other songwriters producers recording artists if you're going on tour it really is a collaborative team effort in a way that i'm only really starting to see artists facing music startups build for like there was focus on building for a singular autonomous artist mm-hmm. whereas like now a lot more features that are coming in are more about like building for teams like how do you yeah, like loop people on your team into this view of your business, for example. And so to get back to, yeah, like the media slash writing application, I definitely saw this with companies like Substack, where I think a lot of the original business model was around this view of the singular writer who did everything. Like, oh, I'm just going off on my own. I'm running my own business, being my own one person media company. But then it was either like, yeah, last year, the year before I saw that they had like launched this whole accelerator slash like incubation program that was like offering services to writers that they may have missed by not being full time at a media company, like legal services, like writing slash or even just like editing, like being able to have an editor for articles and starting to think about what a more modular team around an otherwise solo writer might look like. So yeah. watching that view and then also, yeah, from my own experience, for sure, this is not, I cannot, absolutely cannot do everything that is happening at Water Music just by myself, especially in terms of like how I want the community and the brand to grow. So it is necessarily a team effort, I guess is how yeah. I would. And I want to get into that because this is like a mind melt, Sherry, because (laughs) I've always been going because everyone (laughs) treats everything as like oppositional. It's either you're part of like Bloomberg or you're like doing everything yourself. And Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but most people want something in between. Nothing against Bloomberg or just doing everything yourself. The lesson here is build a team. One of the false dichotomies is this idea that in the unbundling of publishing, you're either all on your own or you're buried in a legacy news organization. At some point, everyone needs help. Everyone's not good at everything and they need others to help them out to get where they need to go. I think the key here for Sherry was that she understood what her greatest leverage was, which was in the writing. I can attest that it is impossible to do everything yourself and do it well. So let's talk about your journey in that because you went over to Patreon and I remember when we first talked, I was like, well, that's unusual. (laughs) But like when you made the move, like I don't even know if Substack was, was Substack around? It was, if it was around, it was definitely not open Quietly to around. the public. Yes. Yes. Okay. So choosing Patreon was just obviously because of your area, it makes a lot more sense because it would be very strange if, let's say you were doing what you're doing, but the intersection of like tech and marketing or something to do it on Patreon, but explain the choice of platform. For sure. Yeah. So yeah. And in, in, in hindsight, Definitely would not strike a lot of people as like the top platform to go to. I think there were a couple of reasons why at the time it made sense. So one was having multiple price tiers, which was also a reflection of like direct signals I was getting from the community. I want to support you. They didn't name like a dollar amount, but underlying ethos was like, oh, I'd be willing to support you for like more than maybe you might be getting from just from these like freelance payments. Having that flexibility 
again, inspired by the music industry, inspired by platforms like Bandcamp, which have a pay what you want system for a lot of releases. Having multiple price tiers to both make it more accessible, but also account for people's varying willingness to pay or support. I don't think Substack has that currently, but at least certainly not have it at the time. And then also from the very beginning, I guess, inspired by going to these conferences and wanting to build this community around music tech founders and leaders. I wanted some kind of horizontal community to be a core part of the membership benefit as much as the articles themselves. So I was looking into platforms that had existing integrations with whether it's Slack or Discord or Discourse or chat or forum apps where people could start to forge those connections with each other. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Patreon was one of the only platforms that had that integration. And then also being in the music industry, it had the, the brand recognition that would reduce any like friction of people moving to a new platform because people were like pretty familiar with Patreon just as a company. So okay. yeah, so I think those are the main criteria. Yeah, so it was intentional in that like you want a community to be at the core of the brand. What convinced you that there was an actual, I know you said you went to to different events and, and there was, you, you could feel and you could see the community elements of it. But what made you convinced that Water and Music as a brand could have that convening power to be the place that people would want to congregate and connect with each other? Interesting question. I think, yeah, I think what convinced me was, okay, maybe this is, let's like zooming out to a very general statement. And this is a stance that I have about news in general that maybe not everyone would agree with, but I believe that information and like news in and of itself at this point is a commodity. And so it's very hard to build a standalone business around just news, news bites or reporting. If you're trying to build some kind of media business or information business, there has to be some deeper layer around it, whether it's like building a community around it or even just providing like context or like analysis, so not just reporting on the what, but also on the why and the so what. And I especially noticed this with more like B2B or like trade publications. To credit of all the major trade publications out there, I think they are improving on this. But at the time, I was just noticing there was a lot of reporting on various pieces of news in the music and tech world specifically without anyone trying to connect the dots on like, why this piece of news was important or like what it could mean. Like the reason a lot of people subscribe to a trade publication like Billboard or Variety is to like also learn how to do their jobs better. So like lack of context is also like actionable. So how do I use this in my job? How does this make me a better marketer, data analyst, label person, wherever you are in the industry? So I saw that as my role from the very beginning as a freelance writer. I I didn't really see myself as a news reporter by any means, much more like uh, business analysis or just like synthesizing news and information I was seeing from elsewhere. And so just writing for a couple of years before launching this Patreon page and still seeing that there was that gap, I think that also convinced me that there was like a need for that kind of coverage in a way that was more useful and and actionable. Yeah. Yeah. The amount of news out there and the problem with news, it's okay for the top of the funnel. It's good for the top of the funnel because there's always news. There's always something new happening. Yes. But the value of it falls off a cliff after 10 minutes. You know, we're recording this after uh, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock and stuff. That news is not valuable right now. Everyone knows it happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Yeah. 
See, you got to move on. We were joking before we recorded. That's why after this interview ends, I'm, I'm going to write my LinkedIn post about what every manager can learn uh, from how Chris Rock handled getting slapped in the face. Yes. There you go. Uh, <laughs> when did you decide not only that this can be like a solo endeavor, but that you can't do it all yourself. And then how did you choose? And I, I mostly ask this for advice. How did you end up choosing what are the parts that you are going to stay completely focused 100% on and which you're going to build a team to do? Yeah, I don't know if there was a specific point where I made the shift, but also I guess for context on how uh, our community is set up, we're not on Patreon anymore, but from the very right. beginning where the Patreon page was set up, we had a Discord server that was attached in a pretty like low maintenance automated way where if you join the membership, you got access to this private server, it could meet other members there. I guess one signal there was like the server growing to a point where I just simply could not keep up with all the messages and I definitely felt bad about that. Uh, and I still wanted there to be some more like engaging community experience where I was very active day to day, but it didn't solely rely on me. The way that someone described community management to me is always being a really good like party host uh, and good always on way. And that requires like a ton of energy investment, a ton of work, a ton of planning that is complementary to but very separate from writing, which is what I wanted to focus on. So that was the like one of the first part-time now full-time team members I hired. It was just like a community manager and we don't even call it management anymore because we have mixed feelings about that word but just like community operations just like making sure that yeah like community members experience in the server and in general is as is as positive as possible how many people are in the discord group i know they call it server i'm just gonna call it a group yeah whatever floats your boat in the group most paying members are now in the server and there are just under two thousand people Okay. You doubled then from when you first wrote me. I went back to the email in December 2020. Oh, yeah. so that's a good sign. Unless you were inflating yeah, your numbers. You. Not that that ever happened, Sherry. No. <laughs> <laughs> I hope oh you did gosh, an I email hope I wasn't. But yeah, I think if we were talking uh, last year, yep, it like yeah. did double since then. So yeah. Okay. That's great. So explain who they are. Like who pays you for this? Because you're operating at the intersection, which I only have like five or six points. I just make them repeatedly, which <laughs> is that intersections are a great place, like whether tech and music, but then you get tech, music, business, and then you get a more complicated and it can get like really interesting. So who is paying you? So in terms of, yeah, people who are interested in following, especially like deep dives into these topics, the top job roles, I guess, are for sure, like startup founders, a lot of investors, people who work within larger music companies whose roles are to keep up to date with new tech trends. So a lot of marketers, people on marketing teams, business development slash investment teams at like record labels, publishers, artist management companies. The ratio has shifted a little bit in recent months as we've done a lot more coverage on music and Web3 and just like everything under that umbrella, like NFTs, social tokens for music. And it's been really cool to see artists and also like artist managers leaning into really learning more about the tech and not taking the stereotypical attitude. But I definitely see it's relevant to this whole discussion of like artists being like, oh, I don't see my role as keeping up to date with tech. I see my role as just making music. And so I don't need to subscribe. But like now artists comprise one of the most popular job roles in our community solely because of our Web3 coverage. Like there's been a lot more artists coming in wanting to learn yeah. more about what it means to them, which is really cool to see. So yeah, okay. those are the biggest topics. So I think timing is everything in a lot of fields. Yes. And for those who write me about Web3 and not wanting to hear about Web3, this is my like parental advisory that we are now going to talk about Web3. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger, 
Because they seriously get people who are like, why do you keep talking about Web3? And mostly because I think it's a new technology paradigm. Probably won't live up to all the crazy promises that people make, but I think it's worth paying mm -hmm. attention to. But you're like at the front edge because music was at the front edge of a lot of this when it moved out of finance. And so mm -hmm. I'm interested because you're not just like covering, but you're doing with your own DAO. And, and let's get into that. But give me your take about why this is a, a profoundly important development, crypto in general, Web3, when it comes to the music industry. Very succinctly. Oh, yes. <laughs> Very simple question. Let's see. So my answer to this question or like why Web3 for music and also for media is definitely tied to my own understanding of what Web3 even is, which I that's always a good place to start because a yeah. lot of people have conflicting definitions of what we've been talking about. Every new innovation is the same way. I mean, the, the first 15 yeah, minutes yeah. of a programmatic advertising panel is spent debating oh, what programmatic advertising is. So for this discussion slash question, I guess the two layers of quote unquote Web3 that are the most interesting to me. One is the blockchain as a concept for tracking financial transactions and also storing data in a fully like decentralized and immutable way. In the music industry, there are so many applications where that I think could actually add value really resonate. The fact that even today, a decade plus into the, at least the dominant streaming model being a thing, just the way that money flows in the music industry is still super complicated. Still hear stories all the time of artists, especially ones in certain recording and publishing contracts, not getting paid for like six months, not knowing what exactly the holdup is. So for an example, if, if your song goes viral on TikTok and racks up millions of streams on Spotify, but you are assigned to a label, you probably won't get paid for the, that virality for like four to six months at least. There's there's efficiency, efficient, anything yes. with that a complicated supply chain, there's clear efficiency yes. gains that can be had through blockchain, ideally. Yes, yes. That's actually a great like TLDR, supply chain. Yeah efficiency in a music context. So that's one. Yeah. And then the second layer, which I'm still learning so much about myself, but, but I think is super under-discussed, is the idea of decentralized identity. So the idea that the way that you interact with these various blockchains is with a you know crypto wallet, which is some like an identifier that is platform agnostic, and just like implications for that from... This is super relevant in the marketing and advertising world yeah. in terms of like users you know, having access to slash owning more of their own data from a brand like water music from our standpoint being able to have that data on who is supporting us in a way that is not tied to a centralized platform and then being relevant to music as well like knowing who your fans actually are like that is still one of the biggest challenges in the music industry so those are the yeah. two layers that draw me the most yeah. to that tech yeah i think it's a that's a great way of framing it i think because any industry with lots of intermediaries is probably ripe for you know, some kind of disruption from Web3. There's a lot of gatekeeping in music. There's a lot of gatekeeping in media. They both have very complicated supply chains. Both of them, the people who are actually making the stuff, typically don't get a lot of the value that's realized from that stuff, if you will. Yes. So tell me about how you're using this within water and music. I've been reading your posts about your DAO. I'm like super intrigued by it. But at the same time, I'm like, this sounds a little too complicated for what it's trying to accomplish. Which is completely fair. Very helpful okay. feedback, actually, because it is. <laughs> no, it's early. I mean, everything seems complicated, but I love the theory. So let's just start with why do you think DAOs are potentially incredibly important? Yes. So I'll start as concise as possible trying to define, in my view, what a DAO is, because that's also another word where 
no one seems to agree, <laughs> even like people running yeah. DAOs on what a DAO is. The New York Times has done a ton of writing on DAOs recently, and they tend to define it as like a group chat with a shared bank account. I think it's actually a little simplistic. I just see it as members with shared access to some kind of capital, usually in the form of a treasury, where not only is like information about the membership fully decentralized, but then also decisions about how funds in that treasury are used and subsequent execution of those decisions is also all available on chain. I think that's the ideal definition of what a DAO is. So just some organization or community with shared finances and shared decision-making about how to use it, usually in service of some kind of mission. Yeah, I think depending on the application, the way DAOs look are actually very, very different. So probably one of the biggest examples of a DAO that's I guess, so the origin, sorry, the origin of DAOs is built around decentralized governance of blockchain protocols or like applications where I think by necessity, if you want anyone to participate in the network, it has to be decentralized in terms of like decision-making. The ENS DAO being an example, like anyone is able to interact with the application, set up their own ENS domain. And so there's already is that like more of that infrastructure at a much larger scale to have everyone who has an ENS domain be able to take part in decision-making, for example, about the future of that organization. But there are also, there are like various names for this, but more like cultural DAOs. One example that I follow very closely in music is Leaving Records. They're a 15 plus year old experimental record label based in LA, put out some really good music, especially if you're into like experimental electronic slash ambient music. They have their own token, but their aim, I wouldn't even say it's necessarily to achieve like the scale of ENS and to use DAO infrastructure to become the biggest record label in the world. It's more about just like shared financing and shared upside within their specific community. So it's a much more underground kind of grassroots local motivation, I think, around the label. It's a little bit more like what we see with Constitution DAO or with these links DAO, what they buy yes. golf courses and stuff. Yes, yes. But like, how are you using it for water and music? I assume water and music is like an LLC, but how are you turning it into a DAO? Great question. Legal recognition of the DAO side. TBD. But yes, Water okay. Music is established as an LLC in terms of the Web2 revenue side, for sure. We refer to ourselves as a DAO. So we do have a token. It has no financial value, no liquidity currently, but it's in the hands of a couple hundred contributors to our previous articles, like large-scale collaborative research projects that we're taking on, where anyone in our community can contribute to helping us research a certain topic in music and Web3, for example. Mm-hmm. A lot of our like longtime supporters from Patreon days, or like er- earlier eras, we call it, now have this token. To them. I like that. Yes. Yes, we did. Okay, there you go. Yes, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it was a very prolonged process of getting the data in order and like, people's wallet addresses in order. I won't like go too deep into that, but yeah, definitely. So we have like a hybrid Web2, Web3 setup where we have this like Web2 membership but we also have a lot of our core supporters wallet addresses. They have our token, which is called Stream. And the main utility currently is just as a governance token, as a lot of people call it in the Web3 world, where they can vote on and voice their opinion on, for the time being, just like higher level uses or like budgeting around how we use our crypto treasury or just how we use our resources in general. For example, if we want to pursue this like really large scale multi-month research project down the line that will require a certain amount of resources from our treasury, like in the spirit of DAOs, that should definitely be put to a vote among token holders. So that would be an example. You can also earn stream currently for contributing in a lot of different ways to various projects we have going on. So 
We have in the wake of recent months, we have a lot of Web3 related research projects happening. Like we just put out our first music NFT contract template. A lot of lawyers and developers in our community are working together on that. That's a very collaborative effort. We have a lot of non-Web3 related research projects and articles that are also underway. We earn it by contributing to our research. And then you can also use that to vote on these larger scale proposals. Yeah. And, and then, how many months in are you on, on these experiments? So our token officially launched in early January. So we're only a couple okay. months in. We were part of the Seed Club Accelerator. They themselves are a DAO, but they're an accelerator focused on supporting a lot of communities that want to transition into Web3. So a few months in, I know it's super early, right? Are you more optimistic or less optimistic that DAOs can be the main organizational platform for something like water and music? Or would this always be like a side thing? Oh, I'm certainly more convinced. I definitely plan to continue like building out this formal infrastructure, especially for a decentralized data curation, data gathering perspective for these larger scale research projects. That kind of application is especially compelling to me in terms of incentivizing that participation. That said, our team has like kind of gone back and forth on this. It's been increasingly clear to me that a lot of the core issues around running a DAO or the core challenges are running a DAO are absolutely about people and motivating people even more than the tech itself. So there's a learning curve to understanding how the blockchain works or how Ethereum works or layer two, whatever tech terms out there. Yeah. But it's, especially in terms of mobilizing communities, trying to do something like putting together a collaborative research project that is a complete people level issue and not a tech issue. And it's interesting to see the DAO landscape as a whole only really starting to come to terms with that, I think, in, in the last couple of months. The local elections here in Miami Beach, like 20% of people vote. I don't know what percentage mm -hmm. of people are going to vote in DAOs. There's already a huge issue around voter apathy. So not, not just voter apathy, but also voter communication. Like there's a whole separate discussion about how Discord has a monopoly over DAO communication. And a lot of DAO members are part of 10 to 20 different servers. And so they're not checking every server every day all the time. This is not realistic. And so they might like miss out on a proposal that is only being communicated through Discord. And so actually to connect it to like marketing and media, I think one of the most in-demand jobs that might be right now are not tech related. They're marketing related. They're in community management, just like thinking about some kind of communication strategy that does not just rely on Discord. So definitely a landscape-wide concern, I think. Yeah. Okay. I want to have you back on the podcast just to nerd out on like Web3 stuff so I could learn more. I'll bring on Jared Dicker. We just love, we just do it. We could oh my gosh. Perfect. <laughs> micro dose and just get all into it. Jerry, <laughs> thank you so much. I really love what you're doing. It was great to talk to you about it today. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks again for having me. And thank you all for listening. We will be back next week with a episode that could have Web3, could not have Web3. You'll have to listen to find out.